Well, friends, last week was Ash Wednesday, and I know I've said it before already, but we are beginning the season in the life of the church that we call Lent. It's a period of 40 days, not including Sundays, that lead us to the story of Christ's passion, Christ's death on the cross, and then resurrection on Easter Sunday. It's a season that was given to us as a gift for self-reflection as we ready our hearts, as we journey toward the cross alongside Christ. Now, in the Christian church and in the story of Christ, we believe and follow, we believe something significant happened on the cross more than 2,000 years ago. The cross is one of the most significant and uh, recognized symbol of our faith. And yet so many of us question what actually happened on the cross. What does the cross mean for us, the moment of Jesus' death? And how are we supposed to make sense of it? And how might it impact our everyday life? in our life of faith? These are questions that are at the heart of our faith. We know that it happened, but what does it mean for us? So over the next six weeks on Wednesday nights, we're going to unpack the answers to some of those questions through studying a fancy theological word that we call atonement. Atonement. I've got a question for you. How might you define the word atonement? If you're joining us online, go ahead and put your definition in the comment section. What do you think the word atonement means? Just your first guess. Hmm? To make up for. That's great. Good job, Tim. To make up for. Any other guesses? The word atonement. It's a hard one. The word came on the theological scene in the early 16th century as scholars were trying to clearly define what we believe happened on the cross uh, and the impact it makes on our lives. So it's sort of a made-up word. It's a combination of several different words at the time to denote divine unity or reconciliation with humanity, where humanity is literally made at one with God, at one meant, or as it was in the beginning. Many of us remember when we used to sing the Gloria Patri, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, amen. At one meant unity between humanity and divinity. However, what scholars and Christian denominations both then and now can agree on is that at the cross is where this reconciliation or at one meant with God happened. But 
What we can't seem to fully grasp or pinpoint is exactly how that happens or how we are to understand it. The problem is that in Scripture, as I'm sure that you have discovered for yourself, isn't always crystal clear on anything. The divinely inspired authors of Scripture often wrote complex metaphors and meandering circles around complex issues that made a ton of sense to them and leave the rest of us rather perplexed, right? So Scripture uses many different metaphors to help describe the meaning and the impact of Christ's death on the cross. And over the years, scholars have picked them apart and come up with a key, six key theories or schools of thought to help Christians have a deeper understanding of how we are made one with Christ, how we might be reconciled. And so we are going to look at each of these six theories over the next couple of weeks. And I want to share with you that there isn't one right theory each of them have their complexities, their challenges, and their wonderful invitations to us. And looking at this um, idea of the cross and salvation from each of these different angles will help us as we journey ourselves toward the cross, to have a deeper understanding for us of what Jesus did for us, for you and for me and for all of us. And so looking at it from different ways, uh, just like with anything, we might find one clear way that fits for you, but may not fit right for someone else. So I invite you to hold all of these theories loosely, trusting that the Holy Spirit is present with us on this journey uh, and guiding each of us to have a deeper understanding of Christ together. And so tonight we're going to ponder our first theory, the theory of substitutionary atonement. That's a fancy couple of words. To understand a little bit of what that means, I invite each of you to listen to this scripture from Isaiah 53. I invite you to close your eyes and to listen to some of the language that the prophet Isaiah gives to this prophet. Of this messianic prophecy. So hear these words. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence, like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows. lost my place. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. 
But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. This is the word of God given to us as the children of God, and we say, thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, fill this room and fill our hearts as we listen to your word. Open our hearts and minds so that we might learn a little bit more about who you are and who you have called us to be in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So what are some key words in that passage that, uh, that you think might define this idea of substitutionary atonement? What are some wo- words that stood out to you? The Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Our sorrows weighed him down. Any others? He was beaten so that we can be whole. McGray de Vega, author of the book called Savior and a United Methodist pastor from Tampa. Here's the book. Um, Says it this way. Jesus was willing to pay an infinite price, which no human is capable of paying, to satisfy a debt that we owe to God for our sin. This language of Jesus taking on something that was not his own, someone who was perfect taking on the sins of the world. How many of us have grown up hearing this language in church? It's by far one of the most common atonement theories that we hear. It's the way that Jesus and his act on the cross has covered us or has brought us life. It's sprinkled throughout scripture and even through the songs we sing. We just sang one just a few moments ago. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. But what does this actually mean? What are we proclaiming and saying when we say these types of words? With any theory or metaphor, there comes challenges, and there comes some invitations. 
based on this atonement theory seems to be based on an underlying understanding of how the world works that the world might be ordered by a set of hard and fast rules. And when those rules are broken, what happens? There are consequences. When I'm parenting my child, my lovely son Christian, who you have seen run around and run around and run around, we just moved to a new apartment, and I feel like a broken record in saying, do not run because there are people who live below us. And then we go to, if you run again, mommy will take away a Hot Wheel. It's almost like we understand the world and how it works in a set of right and wrong, of uh, awards and of consequences. And this is super helpful in a parenting situation. And it's the way our judicial system works. It's also based in biblical tradition. If you go back through the Old Testament and how the Jewish faith ordered their life together, they understood the world and the ways that they would live out their faith in a set of practices or rules that they were to follow. And when a rule was broken, they had to atone for that broken rule to make themselves one with God again, typically through a sacrifice, an offering on the altar before God. But what does this sort of thinking, this idea that um, to make us one with God, we need to have something needs to be sacrificed. What does this sort of thinking say about the God in which we believe? And for me, if I were to continue following this pattern of thinking, I'm faced with a God who seeks justice from a place of punitive punishment rather than from a place of reconciliation. For me, it speaks of a God who judges from a lofty and unfeeling place rather than a God who chooses to walk alongside me and to take time to know me intimately. And it seems to reduce our relationship to God as one that's a simple transaction rather than a relationship built on mutual understanding and soul-deep knowing. So for me, these are some pretty significant challenges of the way that maybe understanding uh, what Jesus did for us on the cross might uh, hinder my ability to fully understand what was happening there. But I believe this theory also has some powerful invitations for each of us to consider Jesus's absolute willingness to take our place and to take on our punishment, if you will. I invite you to hear these words from Isaiah 53 again, but this time, instead of the word our, I'm going to say my name, and I invite you to, to think of your own name 
put yourself in a um, individual relationship with what is being said in these this scripture. Yet, it was Marissa's weaknesses he carried. It was Marissa's sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for Marissa's rebellion, crushed for Marissa's sins. He was beaten so that Marissa could be whole. He was whipped so Marissa could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of each and every one of us in this very room. How did it feel for you to experience the scripture in a more personal way? Did it feel vulnerable? Did it feel pointed out? For me, the profound invitation of this idea of substitutionary atonement is that it gives us the opportunity to really look in the mirror and to own the ways that each of us have sinned and fallen woefully short of the mark, of the way that God would have us interact with one another, interact with ourselves, and interact with God. And it offers us the opportunity to hold ourselves accountable and feel truly feel the weight of our own choices and the impact that those choices have on our lives and the lives of others. And what we're left with when we realize that it was Christ who took our place, who took on those choices and made them his own and took away our punishment. Well, what's left for me is a sense of deep gratitude deep and overwhelming gratitude. And for me, that is such a gift of this way of thinking. This sense of awe and wonder and unworthiness at a God, at a person who would be willing to take on something that I created, the mess that I made for myself. So as we traverse, continue on this journey of Lent, as we hear so many ways to think about the idea of a cross, I invite us all to hold on to this deep sense of gratitude. That no matter what way we see the cross, no matter what challenges each theory gives to us, What Jesus did for us is so significant, so powerful, and so overwhelming that it leaves us with gratitude. So how might we live out our gratitude in these coming weeks? How might we offer ourselves back to God as we do the deep soul-searching work that this season invites us to. 
Thanks be to God. And amen.